states were freed when Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation on September 22, 18. American school children are taught that states were freed when Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation on September 22, 1862. While true, the reality of actually freeing those slaves was far more complicated. Today, we're going to take a look at what actually happened on plantations when the slaves were freed. You would think that once freed, the slaves would get off the plantations as fast as humanly possible. But in his autobiography, Booker T. Washington mentioned that many ex-slaves, especially older ones, decided to stay. Although free, these ex-slaves typically made deals with their former masters to work for pay. According to Washington, one by one, the older slaves began to wander from the slave quarters back to the big house to have a whispered conversation with their former owners as to the future. Thomas Rutling was only nine when he and his fellow slaves learned of their emancipation. He thought freedom would mean his family would now live a life like their former master. But instead, the family chose to stay on the plantation another two years. Rutledge, along with his brother and sister, finally left the plantation in 1865. They went to live with a family in Nashville. He later attended the Fisk Free Colored School, which eventually became Fisk University. In her 1909 book, Memories of Childhood Slavery Days, ex-slave Annie L. Burton wrote of her own experiences with emancipation. Annie recalled that when the news reached the Alabama plantation she worked on, every slave who wasn't feeble or sickly left immediately. Some of these younger, healthier ex-slaves even immediately joined the Union Army. However, because their mother had run away, Annie and her younger sisters stayed behind under the care of their mistress. This may not have been the act of charity it appears to be. This same mistress tried to talk her husband into not telling the slaves about their freedom and then made the feeble and sickly slaves who remained on the plantation work the fields. After the crops were planted, some plantation owners asked their ex-slaves to sign contracts guaranteeing they would work the crops until January. They would then be divided at the fall harvest for payment. Such a deal is mentioned in the Reverend Irving E. Lowry's 1911 book, Life on the Old Plantation in Antebellum Days, or A Story Based on Facts. Lowry said his ex-master tried to convince the slaves to sign the deals by making a long speech in which he reminded them that he wasn't a bad guy. The plantation owner pointed out that he never put an overseer over them, never employed bloodhounds, and never separated a mother from her child, nor a husband from his wife. He also told them that they were welcome to stay on his plantation as long as they'd like, and that any mistreatment they had experienced off the plantation was their own fault and not his. Although that argument might sound meager to us, all but one ex-slave signed the contract. Charles Hayes owned a plantation 16 miles north of Louisville, Kentucky. Like many slave owners, Hayes at first chose not to tell his slaves about emancipation at all. However, after a few days, he relented out of fear of being arrested. According to ex-slave Harry Smith in his 1891 book, 50 Years of Slavery in the United States of America, Hayes broke the news by saying, I am about to tell you something I never expected to be obliged to tell you in my life. It is this. One and all, women, men, and children belonging to me, you are free to go where you please. 
Smith also noted that at the same time, Hayes was cursing Lincoln's name and exclaiming that if Lincoln were there, he'd kill him for taking his slaves away. However, after Hayes cooled down, he gave the entire plantation access to his whiskey stash and threw what sounds like a pretty decent party. It was described as a great jubilee in which the ex-master and all the ex-slaves got drunk together. Smith recalls that everyone was cheering Abraham Lincoln, but Hayes was way too drunk to notice. By nightfall, the revelers had broken into song and dance and kept it up until morning. According to the Civil War diary of James T. Ayers, Charles Hayes was far from being the only master who tried to hide the news of emancipation from his slaves. Ayers was a Union recruiter who went into the South to enlist newly freed men into the Union Army. Things being as they were, he also often found himself as the person to inform the ex-slaves that they were, in fact, now free. In his diary entry for May 7, 1864, Ayers recorded spreading the word about emancipation to a group of four ex-slaves on a plantation near Huntsville, Alabama. He accomplished this by showing them a broadside that featured an illustration of freed slaves on one side and a two-sentence version of the Emancipation Proclamation on the other. Ayers states the four men agreed to enlist, so he told them to gather the things and he promised he would protect them. When they were confronted by their ex-master, Ayers drew his revolver and, sounding much like a hero in an action movie, calmly told the man, I shall not hurt a hair of your head, sir, if you be quiet, but I have come for your slaves, and your slaves I'll have. It is believed that Ayers recruited hundreds of black soldiers to the Union cause and spread the word of emancipation to thousands before his death in September of 1865. According to his 1901 autobiography, Up From Slavery, the first day of freedom at the Virginia plantation where Booker T. Washington was born started with a simple, solemn meeting. The meeting was then followed by a reading of the Emancipation Proclamation by a government official, and the news was initially quite well received by the now former slaves. Washington recalled that the master's entire family had gathered on the veranda of the house. He got the impression that they were sad, not because of the loss of property, but rather because they were, in many ways, very close to some of the ex-slaves, who would now be leaving. He recalled his mother kissing her children while tears of joy ran down her cheeks. According to Washington, for some minutes there was great rejoicing and thanksgiving and wild scenes of ecstasy, but there was no feeling of bitterness. In fact, there was pity among the slaves for our former owners. Once the initial joy passed, however, many of the ex-slaves began to feel anxiety over what freedom would really mean. Washington observed, The great responsibility of being free, of having charge of themselves, of having to think and plan for themselves and their children, seemed to take possession of them. He noted that some of the slaves were 70 or 80 years old and had no strength with which to earn a living. According to 1908's generously titled, Memoirs of Samuel Spotford Clement Relating Interesting Experiences in Days of Slavery and Freedom, Clement's ex-master, Taswood Ward, informed him and the other slaves on Ward's plantation of their freedom by reading to them from the newspaper. Spotford recalled that when Mr. and Mrs. Ward came out of the house, he was holding a newspaper and she was crying. They walked to the front of the steps and he said, Men and women, you are as free as the birds that fly in the air. Ward then raised the paper and read from it. He informed the ex-slaves that Lee had surrendered to Grant and the Southern Confederacy was at an end. 
He then offered to pay the men to stay and help reap the crops. The offer was accepted by all but one man. Known only as Uncle Fendel, the man was concerned that the rebels might pick up the fight again and revoke their freedom. There's somebody who's been around a block once or twice. Thomas Almond Ashby was 17 years old when he watched his father inform the family slaves on their Front Royal Virginia plantation that they were all now free. In his 1914 memoir, The Valley Campaigns, Ashby recalled that his father told the ex-slaves that he had no further control over them and that in the future he would pay them for their services based on wage rates established by the community. He told them that if they wished to stay in his employ, they could do so as long as they desired, but that if any of them wished to seek out a new home, he wouldn't try to stop them from making a change. The elder Ashby further assured the now freed people that he had nothing but a friendly desire to see them do well and be happy. He also warned them of the altered conditions that freedom would bring, and he urged them to cultivate habits of thrift and industry. He believed hard work would make them useful citizens and earn them self-respect, which is some pretty ironic advice coming from a slave owner. According to Ashby, it took several years before all of the ex-slaves had finally left the plantation. One, a woman known only as Aunt Susan, seemed to take Ashby's advice about thrift to heart. After saving up three years' worth of money she earned taking in the wash and doing light work, she was actually able to buy a neat little house in the city. Juneteenth, also known as Emancipation Day or Freedom Day, is an official holiday in the state of Texas and an unofficial American holiday that commemorates June 19, 1865. On that date, Union General Gordon Granger read from the federal proclamation that slavery was over in the state of Texas. While the Emancipation Proclamation had ended slavery in the Confederacy more than two years earlier, it took some time for the news to reach all parts of the war-torn states. Granger's proclamation guaranteed absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves. It also declared that the connection between master and slave was officially replaced by that between employer and hired labor. During the late 19th century, Juneteenth was primarily celebrated by the black community. However, the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s led to a renewed interest in the holiday at a wider level. In January of 1980, it became an official holiday in the state of Texas. And in the 21st century, it has become a widely recognized day to celebrate black historical achievements and encourage respect and pride in all cultures. Violence is self-defeating. He who lives by the sword perish by the sword. You know, when you construct a man as a great man, there's nothing almost more satisfying than also seeing him as the opposite. When the National Archives puts documents up on the web, one has to confront them. Tapes from the hotel rooms, FBI reports, those are pieces of information that we shouldn't have. The FBI was most alarmed about King because of his success. He realized how sick this country was. We were trying to reveal the truth about segregation. J. 
Edgar Hoover is famous for saying that he feared the rise of a black messiah. The FBI says it's clear Martin Luther King Jr. is the most dangerous Negro in America, and we have a resource at our disposal to destroy him. J. Edgar Hoover was the head of the FBI for 48 years. The FBI's focus was collecting salacious sexual material of King with various girlfriends. Hoover had made the speech that Martin Luther King was the world's most notorious liar. Now what am I going to do about Martin Luther King? Looks to me like he's too far gone. This was a way that they could bring down a very influential black civil rights leader and contain the movement. The FBI mailed a tape of Dr. King with other women to him and to Coretta with an advice that he should go kill himself. the fire is very hard when people are trying to kill you who was to the left of mainstream in civil rights was deemed a subversive they use surveillance in order to foment violence and break apart these organizations they were running a surveillance state this represents the darkest part of the bureau's history 